Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. And some of you may be thinking, uh, wait a minute, aren't we in Colossians? And we are in Colossians, uh, but we're taking uh, a break this week. Um, I preached this sermon uh, earlier on this week, and it fed me. And um, if I find that something feeds me, then I know it'll feed uh, you and feed God's people. So I want to share this passage uh, of Scripture, this chapter of Scripture with you. It's a long chapter. It's 30 verses, so we're going to jump right into it. And um, But uh, it's an exciting story, and it's a story that um, has been told a million times. Uh, you probably, even if you uh, didn't grow up or spend much time in church, most people know, know this story, and sometimes it's relegated to maybe a superficial story or just a children's story, but it's actually a very, very powerful story. So um, Daniel chapter 3. I'm just going to get right into it and then pray. And it reads, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and prefects and governors and counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, magistrates, and officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar stood up. And they stood before the image that he had set up, and a herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn and pipe and lyre and trigon and harp and bagpipe and every kind of music, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshiped the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, at that time, Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the the instruments (laughs) shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But there are certain Jews whom you have appointed... Over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? O Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the instruments, that you fall down and worship the image I have made well and good, 
But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against these three men, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and tunics and hats and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then the king was astonished, and he rose, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered to the king and said, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door in the burning furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then these three men came out from the fire and the satraps and prefects and governors and the counselors. They gathered together to see that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of the heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Heavenly Father, it's, um, it's easy to dismiss a story like this as just a story. We believe there's value in the reading of the Word of God, that the Scriptures have power because they're your Word. We pray that you would open our hearts and help us, O God, to to understand what it means to to hold fast to our faith uh, in a time in our culture when it's so easy to abandon it. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds at this very moment, that we would uh, be uh, edified by the word of God, transformed and sanctified and even rebuked by it. 
Lord, we pray that you convince us and convict us this morning and bless us to to go out of these doors different than we came in. To the glory of your name, amen. The book of Daniel is an important book. Um, It's a complex work of biblical um, literature and history, and it recounts the salvation history of the nation of Israel while they were captives in Babylon. It's about public life. It's about the life of Daniel and his friends in the public sphere um, as they served in the court of the most powerful man on the planet 26 centuries ago. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, that you are a Hebrew teenager, and the world's only superpower, Babylon, has invaded your nation and destroyed your country and its most important city and your temple in Jerusalem. And your tiny little nation state in the Middle East has been destroyed and your beloved temple is gone. The house of Yahweh is in ruins and you're being carried off into Babylon. And as you come into Babylon as a captive, recovering from the trauma of what just happened, you're struck with Babylon's immense high culture. Uh, Babylon itself was one of the ancient wonders of the world, and it was a staggeringly advanced culture compared to Israel um, in Jerusalem. It was on the river Euphrates, and it, is, and it was a magnificent architectural site. It's traumatic, possibly being taken from your home at 15 years old, from the people you know and the language you know and the, and the environment you know, and being catapulted into an utterly new world, a big world, a world that is bigger in every way and in every dimension from the world that you once knew. In Babylon, the engineering was spectacular. As you came into the city, you would have seen the Ishtar gates with the winged bulls, with the 20-meter-wide processional. And as you walked through these massive gates, where in Israel and Jerusalem there was nothing like it, you would have come across uh, um, uh, uh, the temple of Etamenanki, which is the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. You would have been uh, utterly stunned at the architecture. These were buildings whose reputations spanned right across the world. You would have also encountered the ziggurat. The ziggurat means that which rises, and it was 100 meters high. And it was one of the earliest skyscrapers um, in uh, the Middle East. In fact, the plans of the ziggurat to this day are in the British Museum on a cuneiform tablet. Their mathematics was so influential that every one of us has a relic of it on our wrists. 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, uh, 360 degrees in a circle. And their mathematics were very advanced. Uh, They were advanced in their engineering. They had water engineering to cool their buildings. Their music was famous. They had libraries all over the place. 
But above all, they were polytheistic. In his book on Iraq, um, ancient Iraq, George Rue observes that um, the ancient Babylonians were maybe the most polytheistic culture that had ever existed. And at this time, there were almost 1,200 pagan temples in Babylon. Every institution was coordinated to their polytheistic religion, their education, uh, their government, um, everything. Even, even mathematics was attached to the gods. They cleverly observed the stars, and their mathematicians were also astronomers, and they calculated in great detail um, how to apportion land. So what we're talking about is a very advanced culture. And when Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego got over the trauma of it all, they, they would realize that all of this raises massive questions. I mean, think about it. You've been told that you serve the one true God, the God who made the heaven and earth, but your nation has been destroyed, and you get to Babylon, and it appears from what you can tell that the new, this new place with these new gods is so much more superior than where you came from. Why didn't we have all of this advanced architecture? What's going on here? You know, they, they, had, they had vast learning and, 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 and scientific discovery and engineering and all these things. And you see the problem? You see the challenge that it would have raised for a Hebrew captive. There's already pressure. Even before the king's decree, there's already pressure to conform your heart to these new gods. They seem so superior, such a superior culture on the surface with its engineering and all of these different things, an advanced culture, and they probably had to be thinking to themselves, Carol touched on it a minute ago, about how they were educated in the king's palace for several years to, 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 to learn all of the Babylonian culture, and they probably had to be thinking to themselves, you know, this is so thrilling, what can be wrong with it, you know? This is, we didn't get, we didn't get this level of education back in Jerusalem, and they probably were struggling, and I'm sure they were struggling with this collision of what their prophets had told them, that the God of Israel was the only one true God, but how could they continue worshiping that God now that they were surrounded with Babylon's gods, which seemed so much greater? You recognize the problem. The parallels to our predicament today as believers in the modern world are staggeringly similar. We live in a world that's obsessed with power, and the choice before us is often an ethical choice to show our loyalty to the idols of our culture or choose the covenant way of life. So the question I want to ask this morning is, why should we stand when so many others are bowing? Or how can we stand? when so many others are bowing. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image of gold on the plain of Dura. And the interesting thing, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, is in chapter 2 he has this dream. And it's a dream of an image with a head of gold and a breastplate of silver and a torso um, 
of, uh, of bronze and legs of iron and toes mingled with iron and clay. And the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. And in the image, which is tr- this dream, which is translated by Daniel, if you know the story, the image is ultimately shattered. And so Nebuchadnezzar is reeling from the knowledge that his kingdom and his power isn't forever. And so here in chapter 3, he raises up an actual statue. It's really a totem pole. I mean, a 90-foot totem pole. But what he's trying to do is kind of, you know, he's shaken from the, the translation that Daniel gave his dream that he wouldn't reign forever. And while he has power still, he wants to consolidate his power. And so he raises this image and he calls all of his elite and his nobles to worship, right? If that's the future, that he won't reign forever, he realizes he wants to at least extend his power as much as he can. He's trying to remedy the knowledge uh, of, of chapter that, that we learn in chapter 2, that he's not going to have power forever. And he plays this orchestra for all of them to come running when they hear the music, those funny instruments uh, that I mentioned. And all of the nobles and the elite and the people, they come running when they hear the music. They're like Pavlov's dog, you know? And they're like puppets, and they're like automatons. And the text wants us to understand that people who serve idols become like idols, dumb. And Shadrach and Meshach, they refuse. Imagine holding a position of state And on Monday morning, you get to your palatial office, and there's a memo on your desk that says, uh, next Thursday, everyone in the empire, including you, needs to show up on the plain of Dura to worship this 90-foot image. And the instructions from the Department of Homeland Security say, uh, the consequences are simple, bow or burn. Can you imagine these men going home and talking to their their wife and their kids. What are you going to do, honey? I'm not going to bow. What about me and the kids? Daddy, what's going to happen to you? Imagine their friends coming to them and saying, it's meaningless. These idols are meaningless. Yeah, we believe in the one true God. You know, there are other Jewish friends. But this is just a symbolic gesture. Thousands of people are going to be there. Um, I mean, what does it matter if you bow? I'm not going to bow. Right now, Christian martyrs are dying for their faith. They're being asked to bow, and they don't. They won't. And the question is, are you going to bow? And the king gives them a second chance to bow down. And here's something interesting for us to realize. He's not concerned with their beliefs necessarily. He's concerned with their actions. Let that settle in for just a second. He's not concerned with what's going on in their heart. He's concerned with their public confession. He's concerned with their actions doesn't care, right? They've got Yahweh in their heart. He's concerned with them showing an outward demonstration of obedience to he and his gods. And it's crude idolatry, but it's subtle. 
right? In fact, you know, the statement he says, who is the God that's going to deliver you out of my hand? And the reason that's important, because if you are one of these three Hebrew men, now they're men, it's been several years, they're not teenagers anymore, you're thinking to yourself, well, he's right. Maybe he's right. I mean, if Yahweh was going to show up, he would have done it back in Jerusalem. And certainly Nebuchadnezzar's thinking that. He's not, he's not angry because the gods of Babylon have been challenged. He's angry because his power has been challenged. And he says, who is the God that will deliver you from my hand? In verses 16 and 18, they refuse to bow. I can hear their voice as he calls them forward. Sir, our God is perfectly able and capable of delivering us, but he may not. Nevertheless, we won't serve your gods. We're not going to bow. And they give their lives. They're willing to lay their lives down. Now, I want to be careful here because there are suicide bombers who are willing to lay their lives down too. But there's a big difference. They offer their lives to kill others, to maim and destroy and to steal life. But when, when death comes to God's people, um, it's not something we volunteer for, but when it comes, uh, Christians have the same mind that was in Christ, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And all the way, I mean, to this day, Christian martyrs carried off to their to their death, right, trying to love their enemies. So that's a big difference. That's something we should know. So why should we stand when others are bowing? Well, the primary reason for standing, and hear me now, is not confidence that God will deliver. Right? That's a naive reading of the story, right? We should stand because God will always deliver us from our circumstances, and they didn't have to suffer. Praise God. It looks scary, but they didn't have to suffer. Actually, I, I would um, suggest to you that they suffered greatly even in the decision. In fact, the suffering of this story is not being thrown into the fire. The suffering is the decision. And that's often where we encounter the biggest challenges in our life. It's the decisions when we run up against challenges to bow to the idols of our culture or the things around us. So, so how can we stand when so many others are bowing? We stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego primarily because there is but one God. All other gods are not truly gods, and anything that requires us to bow before it is an idol. They did not bow when others were bowing. They stood when others were getting on their knees because they worshiped, and we worship, the one true God. You shall have no other gods besides me, and you shall not make any graven image. You know, the character of a truly ethical action um, is motivated by the merit of the action, not by its positive or negative payoff. Does that make sense? Right? The character of a truly ethical action is, is not the benefits of it, 
but, uh, but the merit of it. Um, the cosmic struggle against the powers and the rulers of darkness is played out thousands of times, millions of times, every single day in miniature in your life, in our lives, in the lives of God's people. We can think of, you know, the struggles against the powers of darkness on this grand scale, but in truth, it's played out through God's people, corporately and individually, every day on a miniature scale. Every day, we face the challenge to bow to the idols around us and to the gods around us, the false gods. And every day, we face the challenge to show our loyalty to either the cultural gods or choose the covenant way of life every single day. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, to endure the cross is not a tragedy, It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. And Calvin says, sincere piety flourishes in us only when we truly commit our lives into God's hands, always ready to be sacrificed. And so what's at stake is whether we'll maintain our public witness to God because there's only one God. They stood because they remembered the first two commandments. You will have no gods before me, and you will make no graven images. Right now, our culture, um, there are voices in our culture right now. And they're saying, why won't Christians just join the moral revolution? Why can't they just get on board and abandon these these, uh, antiquated, ancient, primitive ideas about morality and about reality? That's what they're saying. And those voices sometimes are really loud, right? I mean, it's in the news feed on your smartphone. It's on television. It's on the Internet. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in this high uh, advanced culture of Babylon, starting to second-guess that tiny little nation that they, were deli- that they came from, we can do that too sometimes. And we can feel the weight of our culture and our world bearing down on us, really pulling on us, crying out for us to bow. But we won't bow because our knees are reserved for Jesus Christ, and one day every knee will bow to him. We bow now, right, by God's grace, not because we're so great, but one day every knee will bow to Jesus Right now, they're bowing to some, something else, themselves, the culture around them. Nebuchadnezzar responds with uh, the command to destroy them. And in a fit of rage, he responds furiously. And there's a lesson there for us also. You know, powerful patrons sometimes can turn into dangerous enemies. Through the history of the church, there have been times where the state has been an ally of the church, and then there are times where the state is the enemy of the church, right? In America, we've had it good for a long time, but things are shifting, right? Our our allegiance isn't to the state or those with power. It's always to God because those allegiances, they shift and they change. Um, 
They're thrown into the furnace, which is heated seven times. And in verse 24, it tells us that he's astonished. I'm sorry if I haven't been referring back to the slides. I hope they've been keeping up with me. I might have been a little erratic here, but it's a big chapter with a lot of verses. But he was astonished, and he rises up in haste, and he, he looks down, and he sees in the furnace, what does he see? He says, didn't we throw three men in there? But there's a fourth in there like a son of the gods. This is a Christophany, we call it. A Christophany is uh, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. There are some commentators that, that don't agree with that, but I agree with the commentators who believe it is Jesus. I believe this is Jesus. And it's, it's a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. And here's the link. I started off this sermon talking about Nebuchadnezzar's image in his dream. Well, that image, do you know how it was destroyed? There was a rock not made with hands in Daniel 2.45, and it crushed every kingdom it encountered, and that rock is Christ. Nebuchadnezzar's, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans, every kingdom that exalts itself, including this one we're living in right now, that exalts itself above the knowledge of God will be grind to powder by the rock that is Jesus Christ. Amen. That's powerful. And that's who's standing in the fire with these three men. The rock, Christ, is standing with them. Nebuchadnezzar is getting a glimpse of the true sovereign king whose kingdom will replace all earthly kingdoms, including his own. He's looking at his successor, ultimately, his eternal successor, the one who's really reigning, and he's in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I see a fourth like the son of the gods. And there's this change now. So Daniel 3 is a spectrum. The decree for men to worship his image, and now at the end of the chapter, right, this sobering realization, he's had a change of heart. I don't know that it's a real conversion, but it's at least some kind of halfway conversion where he's able to say, right, he gives this new decree. He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, right? You know, it's a good thing they didn't listen to me is what he's saying, right? In fact, the story is almost a parody. It means to parody the power and the pride of wicked and earthly rulers. And he sets up this command, sets aside, he says, um, they've yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god. I mentioned earlier that there's a naive to, way to read this story, right? Um, that they were delivered and everybody lived happily ever after. But they suffered agonies, we shouldn't miss that. We can connect with them as we experience and suffer sometimes the same agonies. But what may, may not have been clear to them should be clear to us that the other reason we can stand when others are bowing is this. The Lord doesn't abandon us in trials. Especially in the midst of trials, he doesn't abandon us. He's with us. 
His presence abides with us. God promises to be with us. Isaiah 43 and 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, which is to try you and test you as though something strange happened to you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Christ is with us in trials. That's the other reason that we don't bow that we can stand when others are bowing. The world doesn't care about private beliefs. It's concerned with public conduct. Society won't give you a hard time if you have Jesus in your heart. Did you know that? They don't really care. Oh, you have have Jesus in your heart. It's your private belief system. Fine, I don't care. But what happens in secular society is faith is privatized. Right? Don't bring that to the public sector. You, you, don't, you don't bring that to school or you don't bring that to, to the workplace or you don't bring that to the, the coffee shop. No, 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 no. You keep that at home. Right? Your private religion is fine, but, but where things start to get hairy, and that's what happened here in this story is bringing it to the, pub, the public sphere. You know, They could have said, uh, well, we'll bow with our knees, but in our hearts we'll be standing. <laughs> you know? But they knew that that, that wouldn't do. Um, you know, it's not whether you read the Bible or pray and go to church. Those are good things. We, ought, we should all do that. But will you stand publicly when others are bowing? That's the challenge. That's the real challenge. The remarkable thing about this story isn't that they maintained their faith in God. It's that they maintained their public witness. The lordship of Christ extends over every area of existence, both private and and public. So in conclusion, this story reminds us two things. That the moral nature of God is more important than his might. Does that make sense? God wants us to make the right decisions whether or not we feel there's a guarantee that he'll show up in his power and destroy our enemies. He wants us to make the right decision. He wants us to be faithful and obedient. And I'm not moralizing the story to say that. God expects us to be faithful. God wants us to see that these men did the right thing without the guarantee that he would deliver them. And then secondly, true rewards to faithful witness to God is not to be found in its results, but in the experience of knowing the presence of God in the midst and heat of the struggle. We stand when others bow because we recognize that there are no other gods but the God of Scripture. And we stand when others bow because we don't stand alone. God is with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your promise is true that you will never leave or forsake us, that you will never abandon us. Lord, we stand firm on your word because we know that there are no gods beside you. 
that there really is no such thing as an idol. They're, they're, they're just make-believe. There are no other gods. An idol is nothing. Lord, help us not to bow to the idols of our culture. Remind us of your truth and the fact, O oh God, that you reign supreme over this world and the world to come. And Lord, comfort us in the knowledge that you will never leave us. And you're with us, even right now. Our trials may look nothing like these three men, but in many ways there are separate and distinct idols of our time and of our life and of our age that we're confronted with every day. And we may experience ridicule or internal pressure, but Lord, help us with the knowledge that you're with us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As the ushers come forward, would you catch and place your connection as we offer them? Would you give your tithes and offerings?